Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that washed us white as snow. We just pray, Lord, like we do every week, for liberty for our pastor to bring forth the word of God. Prepare us to receive that word. And, Lord, we just pray your will be done today once again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's good to see everybody here on this wonderful holiday and to gather together as a family, together together in faith. Being in one mind and one accord, things can happen. Can I have an amen? How many believe that things can happen when we unite our faith together? If one can put 1,000 to flight and two can put 10,000 to flight, just think what we can do here today with just in our faith being combined together. Today's an exciting Sunday because this is the weekend that we actually celebrate what we call the 4th of July, which is our Independence Day. And this is one of my favorite holidays because of what it stands for and the liberty and the freedoms that it brings to us and that, is, and that it has, uh, that it has uh, allowed us to be able to operate in, in, in our worship and in our, in our freedom of America. You know, I have preached on the 56 brave men a few years back on, on the, and the declara- uh, them signing the Declaration of Independence and the actual price that those men paid in signing that declaration. Can I tell you, your freedom did not come cheap, no doubt about it. And how many know that true freedom is in Jesus Christ? That our true freedom is not just about our forefathers fighting for a country for freedom, but it is what they stood for, and that is Jesus Christ, and that he was the son of the living God and he was to be the savior of the world. Because we know that if you have the son, you have life. If you have not the son, you have not life. Jesus said, know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And if you know the son, he shall make you free. So it is in Jesus Christ through the cross that we have true liberty here today. I wish I had time to talk about the framework of of America, but I'm going to be doing a little bit of something different. I feel uh, compelled by the Holy Spirit to preach today about America in Christ. And uh, matter of fact, I'm going to be sharing some stuff that I've shared before because I'm going to be talking a lot about our history. I'm going to be talking a lot also about different men's quotes. And how many knows that when you talk about history, you're going to say the same old things over and over and over and over because that's what it is. It's our history. You can't just change history in order to have a good sermon. And that's what a lot of people try to do. They try to create things and take things out of context because they want to preach something different. I have preached on the 4th of July now for 35 years to the same congregation. And you're going to think, well, some of the material that I'm going to be using, you're going to think, well, man, you're, you're pretty repetitious in that. You're pretty, you know, you're pretty, uh, well, you know, just keep pounding that and pounding that and saying that and saying that. Well, I want to tell you what Jesus did. Jesus used four gospels and he used four different men to write them and they all say the exact same thing in a little bit different way. One viewed it as Jesus being a man. One viewed it as Jesus being a servant. One viewed it as Jesus being king and one viewed it as Jesus being the son of God and their viewpoints were expressed a little bit differently but Jesus repeated himself over and over and over and over and over and over through those men in the gospel. You know why? So that you could get it and that's why that I'm going to be continually preaching about the history of our nation. It's vitally important. We have a group of young people that has never heard not even in school about the history of our nation. Can I have an Amen. 
and it's vitally important that we understand who we are and where we come from. But I want to talk to you a little bit about America in crisis. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see something, something doesn't change, that America is not only in trouble, but I want to tell you this nation is at jeopardy. We are in serious, we are in a serious place and we better be alert of the times. We got to be sober. We got to be vigilant. We got to be awake because our adversary, like a devil, the devil is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And we can call out all of the hideous things that is happening right now at this present moment, right here in the good old USA right in our very streets, right in our very noses, from the tearing down of our monuments to the tearing down of our statues to push to eradicate and dissolve our history and to rewrite it. And there is an attempt to totally wipe out the identity of America, what she was built for, what she stands for, and what made it great. We see theft, murder. We see crime, violence, hatred, fighting, looting, destroying the property, lawlessness that has formed a chaotic society all over this country. I was looking at some stats the other day and they said if something doesn't change Los Angeles the city of Los Angeles will be completely lost and become a ghost town. They went and they began to talk about how big of a percentage of Portland, Oregon is completely burned down and gone. The manufacturing gone, the jobs are gone, the, the area is suffering and I want to tell you this is happening over city and si over every city of America. We are seeing something that you and I have never, never seen before. And those kinds of things not only affect those areas, but it'll affect every area of our country. Because when plants begin to burn down and jobs are beginning to be lost and momentum begins, right now you're seeing that you're having all kinds of problems. People are getting goods, whether you're in the material business or whether you're in the bodywork business. I hear all kinds of our people say, man, everything's on back order. Everything's on back order. Some things are three months out. Some things are four. That's how fast things can be stripped from America just like that. Can I have an amen? We're living in some real hideous times. I love what our dear sister said, Sister Morgan. She talked about coming from Germany and she said America may not be what it used to be even 10 or 15 years ago but thank God it's still the best country in the world and we got to keep it that way. That is our job. That is what we are supposed to do as Christians because we are not only light, we are salt. We are to preserve our country. And if the Christians will rise up in this nation, we'll see a turnaround because God has promised that if we'll pray, seek his face, turn from his, our wicked ways, God would hear our prayers and God will heal our land. Even though I'm talking about crisis, there's still hope in God of rebuilding our nation to become the nation that it needs to be. Don't count, oh glory, out as of yet. It's went through a lot of things. It's been battle torn. It's been, it's been scorched and everything else. But I still salute our flag and declare Oh, glory, you're not done yet because your greatest days are ahead of you and not behind you because we declare we are not giving up. We're going to stand up and we're going to fight and we're going to declare the goodness of God in the land of the good old U.S. of A. Can I have an amen? Somebody shout amen in this house. Oh, hallelujah. How many's with me that we can turn this country around? I don't care what anybody else is doing. Don't look in doom and gloom. The palace of praise has enough power and enough force to begin to start a revolution in this country and declare that God is not dead and that God is still a miracle working God. God still hears the prayers of his people where two or three are gathered together in his name. He's in the midst. And we declare by faith in Jesus Christ that we'll not sit back and let our country die, but we will bring revival and renewal and awakening to 
America through the power of Jesus Christ and the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Well, praise God. Now, you're shouting on me now. Don't get mad at me after a while when I start quoting people. You know what a quote is? They're actual sayings of what people said. It's odd sometimes that you can quote something about somebody that someone likes. They'll get mad at you for the very words that the person said. And it ain't you saying it. It's just you quoting what they said. Come on now. Somebody help me here. But we see the push to do away with police and law enforcement and become governed by a governmental state, which that's the first thing that Hitler had to do in order to take over Germany. Those that can see in the shadows can see the underlining agenda of the enemy to push for socialism that soon will give way to communism. And while of our attentions upon these things, we better be questioning, how did we get here? How did we overcome it? And it's not good enough that we see what's happening But we need to be asking some real questions. And the questions is, what can we do about it? Or more important, what does God expect us to do about what's going on? It was the prophet Habakkuk that found himself in the same familiar place in Habakkuk chapter 1. Look at verses 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry? Have you been crying? How long will thou not hear? Even cry out, I even cry unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance for spoiling and rod and violence and decay are before me? And there are those that rise up strife and contention. There's anger and all that going on. Therefore, the law is slacked. Judgment does never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. Habakkuk was burdened by what he saw, according to verse 1, and he seen that true justice had fallen in the streets. There's prophetic words uh, been given in the book of Malachi about in the last days that one of the things is going to happen that justice is no longer going to be seen, that justice will fall in the streets. And truly we're seeing that. Habakkuk said the law is slack and judgment does never go forth. Habakkuk observed that the righteous was being brought up on false allegations and not only persecuted, but they were actually even being prosecuted. He said the wicked does compass about the righteous. The wicked's coming against the righteous. They're compassing them. They're pressuring them. They're fighting. They're opposing. And that's what we call persecution. But then he says, therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. He said, not only that, they're being brought before judges and they're being judged. And that is what we call prosecution. So we see that even in this latter day that you're going to see the righteous persecuted, even the righteous persecuted. persecuted. And he said, there are two different laws. There's one for the lawless and there's one for the righteous. He said, for the wicked, judgment never goes forth, but wrong judgment proceedeth the righteous. He said, the lawless can do whatever they want to do and they never pay the consequences of it. But he said a righteous man is judged for something that he didn't even do and he's prosecuted and the law is unjust. That's what he said. The very things that Habakkuk seen is the things that we're seeing right now. I was watching a religious broadcast. I haven't even seen it on television yet. And it's crazy why your media won't be show you things like this. But this young man, uh, 20 in his 20s, had one of his young boys with him. And they were up at the, uh, one of the rallies up in Washington, D.C. And at the end, they just took a stroll. And when they did, they come up to the Capitol building. And there was a police officer there. And the police officer looked at him and said, we'll go on in and tour the building. So they said, really? And they said, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. And so the police officer, I 
allowed him to go in and they went in and they toured the building and of course that was the time that it was ransacked and overcome by the, the, the protesters and they come out and just a couple of weeks ago the FBI was there at their house about to break the door in, drawing their guns, getting ready to draw their guns and a little girl opens the door which happened to be the daughter and they begin to call everybody out and they arrested the father and they arrested the boy and they have put them up on all kinds of federal charges. And yet they were innocent. They were innocent. And they told them their story. They didn't care. They're still going to have to go to court. And they're still being charged. There's no charges back down. After investigating and everything else, they did not care. And here's what I don't understand. Yet they got films of all kinds of people burning and looting and throwing things at our police officers and turning over cars and stealing and all of that. Why don't they go after the thugs? Why are they treating on innocent American citizens? Somebody, come on, get away awake here this morning. You understand what's happening right in front of your nose? This is what's going on in America. As Habakkuk said, judgment never goes forth, but wrong judgment proceedeth upon the righteous. He said the lawless can do what they want. Jesus prophesied this would happen in the book of Matthew chapter 10, verse 18. He said, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers, talking about the last day. This is why the psalmist asked the question in our text. Look at verses one through three. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break the bands asunder and cast away our cords from us. Now I want you to understand what this scripture is actually saying. The writer of our text said that the heathen are out to completely abolish and eradicate any godly influence among them. They are designed to cast off restraint and have no part of God ruling over them whatsoever. That's their desire. Matter of fact, they say at any given time, it doesn't matter when you look, they say there's over a thousand anti-faith court cases in our courts throughout America at any given day. Isaiah describes such a people in Isaiah 63 and 19. He said, we are thine, is what the people proclaim, but the remnant said, but thou never bearest rule over them, they were not called by thy name. In other words, the remnant was saying, these are those that were stiff-necked, they were rebellious, they were self-absorbed, and they have become polluted. And they have become as though you never had rule over them in the first place, what the remnant actually said. And yet, even though you never had rule over them, yet they proclaim, we are thine, O God. In other words, they want to be called a Christian, but they do not want any kind of godly restraint. And that's where we're living in America. There are all kinds of people claiming to be Christians, but they don't live out any convictions. They don't want any godly restraint. They get mad at preachers for preaching and telling them what they are supposed to do and what they can and cannot do by scripture. And that if you violate, and they'll call you, they'll call you everything under the book. Believe me, I know. I've been told what's on the internet. You don't have to tell me. I don't even really want to know. I don't even go there. But it doesn't really matter. But I want you to understand, we're living in a day when people want to cast off godly restraint. They don't want any kind of people getting into their business. And yet the church is not trying to get into anybody's business. They're trying to save their lives. 
Can I have an amen? They're trying to make them candidates for heaven. How is it possible? How can a people of God be degraded to the point that they become like a people whom God never even had rule over in the first place? How can a nation start out so right and end up so wrong? Israel never started out like that. Neither did America start out the way that it is now. When the colonists arrived on Virginia shore in 1607 at Chesapeake Bay, the first act of the 120 agreements was to plant a wooden cross in the ground and pray for God's blessings on the new land. This was the real birth of America at Jamestown. The first act was to plant that wooden cross and pray, pray God's blessing upon the land. William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, said this, if we are not governed by God, we will be ruled by tyrants. John Quincy Adams said this, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this, it connected in one unrevocable bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Later on in 1821, it was John Quincy Adams that said, from the time of the Declaration of Independence, the American people were bound by the laws of God and the laws of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they all acknowledge as the root of their conduct, and we all came together to obey the word of God. James Madison wrote, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Patrick Henry said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. President Thomas Jefferson said in his address at Danbury, the First Amendment has created a wall of separation between church and state. But the wall is a one-directional wall. It keeps the government from running the church, but it makes sure that the Christian principles will always stay in government. Can I tell you, you're being lied to and you're getting a bill of goods when they tell you that there's supposed to be a separation of church and state and the church is not to get involved in the affairs of the government. That is a lie from the pits of hell. I want you to know it was never intended for our forefathers to keep the church out of the government, but it was to keep the government from running the church. Can I have an amen? I know that there are people that don't go to our church because there are times I preach politically and everybody says, well, politics is to stay out of religion. Listen to what George Washington said about people that believe that. He addressed this to the nation. He said in his farewell speech, he addressed this to the nation. He said, do not let anyone claim tribute of American patronism if they uh, even attempt to remove religion from politics. I want to tell you, you can say whatever you want, but I want to tell you what is going to preserve America, what is going to keep America is the same thing that it was built upon, and that is for firebrands of preachers and Christians and believers all over this world standing up and declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope of a nation and it's the only hope of a people and if we'll just preach Jesus and tell them the gospel and declare the good news and to proclaim him as Lord we'll see a turnaround in America give the Lord praise oh God help me preach I'm about to preach hallelujah well glory 
Hallelujah. It was the desire from the very beginning of our forefathers to covet with one another to form and to build a Christian nation where God would rule and reign through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the pilgrims came, landed on Plymouth Rock, Rock on the Mayflower, as they landed, they joined together in what was called the Mayflower Compact in 1620. And these are the words of the covenant that they made with one another. Listen to this. In the name of God, amen. Having undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith, we do solemnly and mutually in the presence of God covenant and combine ourselves together. Huh. They declared that they came here for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1643, just about 23 years later, as more and more people came into the new shores, into the new land, up in New England, they formed a confederation called the New England Confederation. The New England Confederation was the first written constitution of groups of groups meeting together, and it was formed in 1643. The New England Confederation Constitution began with these words. Whereas we all came into these parts with one and the self-same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel and peace. They were united in a common goal to worship God in holiness, to hold to the gospel of purity that would produce peace and advance the kingdom of God. That's what this nation was all about. Just like you and I, they were not all perfect. They were far from being perfect. They didn't claim to be perfect. But they all acknowledged that God was the supreme ruler over man and over government. They even said that the government was placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, according to the book of Isaiah. They sought God for his help. They built this nation upon faith in him and in him alone. And for him is the only one that would be able to sustain it. That's what they said. But now we have, we have a rise of an antichrist spirit that's trying to rule and to reign over this land. I want to show you where we're at. We have a new generation that has lost their faith and in return, you know what they have lost? They have lost their patriotism. How many patriots do I have in this building? I have a few. Come on, shout it. How many? Don't be afraid of it. Are you a patriot? How many patriots do I have in the house? Hallelujah. But the new generation is out to rewrite America, to abolish history, to do away with their constitution, to burn our flag, and to abolish our national anthem. Now, I know I'm like Tim Hill right here a little bit. When they begin to burn our flag and abolish our national anthem, and when they take a knee, I want to tell you, sometimes I don't preach out of the anointing, I preach out of anger. It's called a righteous indignation. Can I have an amen? Sometimes you just got to get angry at where things are going. And I, I, you can do whatever you want to do, but I want to tell you what I have done. I have turned off baseball. I have turned off basketball. When they start taking knees, when they start wearing their Black Lives Matters, when they start making everything political, I'm done. You can say whatever you want to say. That's my prerogative. You can have your own prerogative. But I, I am not going to support something that's out to cut my throat and destroy my children. And if, you, and if we would quit supporting that nonsense, uh, you would begin to see the ratings go down. When the ratings go down, all of these other people would begin to switch what they're doing and they would pay attention to the Christian voice. Can I have, oh man, I'm getting really political now, ain't I? It's time to take a stand. Can I have an amen? 
They're saying that our Constitution is outdated, discriminative, and not even relevant for today. That's what they're saying. And they even believe it's constructed by prejudice with prejudice, white supremacy. That's what they think about our Constitution. It was President Obama. Now, I'm mentioning the name here, but it's his quote, so you can get mad at him. He said it was President Obama that said to the United States Nation General Assembly on September the 24th, 2014, concerning the United States Constitution. He said on issue after issue, we cannot rely on a rule book written for a different century. It is also recorded that he had said this to reporters about the Constitution. The document is so outdated that it is now beginning a hindrance to be governing of the country. With this in mind, how he viewed the Constitution, listen to what he said in his campaign for president on September the 11th, 2008 at the Service National Summit. He said, Washington is broken. My whole campaign has been premised from the start on the idea that we have to fundamentally change how Washington works. Now, I like that. Matter of fact, everybody bought into that. Everybody liked what he was saying. Even though many of us agreed to the statement, yet the real question is that we got to ask, okay, that sounds good, but in what manner and in what is your approach on changing America? You're wanting to change it, but how are you wanting to change it? We all want it changed. Come on now. He starts out by saying we should foster a culture in which people's private religious beliefs, including atheists and agnostics, are respected. And that it's the kind of culture that I think allows all of us then to believe what we want. That's freedom of conscience and that's what our Constitution guarantees. You know what that statement is completely correct. Even though we call, can all agree with that the Constitution gives the freedom for a person to think what they want to think. That's our, the right of the Constitution. And they, those people that believe that there is no God, whether they be agnostic, whether they be atheist, they should be able to live their lives being respected, not discriminated against because of the religious belief. They should not be, uh, Christians should not stone them. Christians should not shoot them. Come on. Am I, am I all right preaching that? Yet the problem comes in by his opening statement. We should foster a culture. And even though we understand what it means to foster a culture, yet the real question is just what kind of changes to be made in the forming of that culture and what do you want that culture to look like? Answer those questions for us before we start jumping on the bandwagon and elect somebody president. To say that we need to foster a new culture, then we are saying that the old culture is not good. That the culture that America was raised up under is not good, yet it's the greatest thing that has ever happened to the world. Come on, somebody. The lid come off in his true agenda when he made this statement. Last time I checked, Congress was created to uphold the values of the Constitution, not the Bible and its biased teachings. Now we see what he wanted to change about the American culture. He did not like the forefathers, that the forefathers were committed to the rule of God and the supremacy of the law, the word of God to be the rule of American government. This is what President Obama himself said in a speech on 2006 to a liberal Christian group calling for a renewal of culture. Listen to what he said. It would be impracticable to govern based solely on the word of the Bible, noting that some passages suggest slavery is permissible and eating selfish is disgraceful. Which passage of Scripture should guide the public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests slavery is okay and the eating of selfish is an abomination? 
Or could we go with Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith? Or should we just stick to the Sermon on the Mount? Now, Obama being an articulate spokesman and a brilliant orator, he was. He was clever in his construction of his speech to confuse and distort and to manipulate the general thought and the consensus of the framers of the Constitution. He took the Bible completely out of context and he deliberately distorted the traditional understanding of the Bible to fit his own view and his own confused theology. His referencing antiquated dietarial codes of the Old Testament and passages that no longer was relevant to the teaching of the New Testament. He knew that these scriptures were not the intent of the framers of the American Constitution to rule the government. It is recorded over and over and over about the intent of the forefathers that the New Testament was to be the only rule of government for our nation. It was to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, such as love your neighbor as yourself, such as Luke 6 and 31, do other others as you'd have them to do unto you, the golden rule. It's like Romans 12 and 9, love be, must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to that which is good. And 1 Corinthians 16 and 14, let everything be done in love. 1 Peter 4 and 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers the multitude of sins. And we could go on and on and on on what the framers had in mind, but I think we get the understanding of what our forefathers meant and what they were saying. So now, for the last several years, we have an aggressive push to change American culture. How many have seen our culture change? Come on, somebody. How many have seen our American change? They want to push away any rule of God or the answering to a higher power in this country. Obama said democracy demands that the religiously motivated translate their concerns into universal rather than religion-specific values. You say, what in the world does that mean? I'll tell you in a minute. He went on and said, it requires the proposals to be subject to argument and amendable to reason. Now, you have to almost uh, have to get out and study what he says, but this is what he says. Do you know what he actually was suggesting? He suggested that those of us that is motivated by our faith and motivated by religion. How many is motivated by your, how many live by your faith? Come on. Does your faith rule you, govern you? Then he's talking about you. This is what he suggests to you. He, he said, you should attempt to appeal to a broader segment of the population by not just framing your arguments around religious precepts or on the word of God. In other words, he wanted the consensus of the population to tell you what to think and to tell you what to believe. God help us. Let's look at the gradual slope that he took us through. First of all, he embraced and fostered a culture of pluralism. How many knows what pluralism is? I had to look it up myself. Pluralism is a condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, or sources of authority coexist together. So we see this in the statement. We see this in his first statement. He said, we should foster a culture in which people's private religious beliefs, including atheists and agnostics, are respected. And though all of us believe in that statement, yet we do not agree to the culture that he wanted to foster in order to bring that about. Because when he said that Congress was created to uphold the values of the Constitution and not the Bible and its biased teachings, when he called the teachings of the Bible biased, he revealed that he wanted the other pluralistic viewpoints to be a part of the governing of our government. He did not think that the government should solely be governed by the Word of God. As a matter of fact, he called the Bible's teaching as being biased. 
This means that he thought the teachings of the Bible to be prejudiced and in favor or against one person or group to another. But I want to tell you the word of God is not biased. The word of God is not discriminative. I want you to know the word of God speaks to all of us, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're bond or free or whether you're black and white, we're all treated the same in his sight and we're his creation and we're marvelously and wonderfully created and there is no biasness in God. Can I have an amen? Now we see that he desired to systematically change the way that government is to be ran. By fostering a culture of pluralism where two or more rules of authority coexist at the exact same time. They live together. He didn't just want atheists and agnostics respected. He wanted them empowered and to be able to govern and rule. Come on now. So now America has adapted to what we call a pluralistic society. This, then he said, democracy demands that the religiously motivated translate their concerns into universal rather than religious-specific values, and it be required that their proposals be subject to argument and amendable to reason. In other words, this statement took the culture into a whole new uh, level. He's now moving us from a pluralistic society into a society of relativism. Relativism is a doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context, and they are not absolute. Relativism, then, is the thesis that all points of views are equally valid. Relativism is the belief that there is no absolute truth whatsoever on earth, only the truth that a particular individual or culture happens to believe in or embrace. Now we have become a culture of relativism where whatever we can relate to is identified as truth. Truth then has become subjective and not objective. Now truth has been established by personal feelings, taste, or opinions, or by one's principles. In other words, if I think it's all right to have 10 wives and if I believe it to be true, then it's okay because it's truth to me. That's what he's preaching. So now we have no absolute truth that rules a society. But now we have a truth that is whatever one believes it to be, by the way he feels or by the way he perceives or by the way he likes, that's what truth is. You know what that goes back to? Go study it. We see it very strong in the Bible. It's in the book of Judges. Everybody done what was right in their own sight, and look where that got them. See if you want to live in that day. Come on, people. Lawlessness. This is what American culture has bought into. We've moved from being a culture informed by Christian values and absolute truth by the governing of scriptures to a pluralistic viewpoint that has now become empowered by relativism. Now, instead of having an absolute truth to rule, we have fostered a culture that is ruled by what one feels, the way one thinks, or the way one likes, or the way one perceives. We have people all the time, even in the, I've heard it, counseling. I don't care what the Bible says. I know what's right. I don't care what Christians say that it's all right to live with a boyfriend before marriage. God don't want me to be unhappy. He wants me, I hear that all the time in counseling. If I've heard it once, I've heard it. I don't care what the Bible says. God wants me to have, those of you that's caught in tradition and those of you that are narrow-minded and those of you that are not adapt to change, you just can't understand. God wants us all to be happy because God's a God of love. God's a God of conviction. God's a God of judgment. God's a God of holiness. And we bought into this culture, whatever I seem to be right, whatever I feel, whatever feels right, 
then that's what is right. The problem with relativism is it demands that all viewpoints are equally valid. Here's where trouble comes. Relativism is cultural absolutism in disguise. What does that mean? You're saying, that don't even make sense. Well, it didn't make sense to me, but when I heard a guy say it, I went and I thought, I thought about it and I studied it and this is what it's meaning. This means that the only thing that can be accepted within our culture by these guys is what is fostered out of the principles set by political, philosophical, ethical, or theological ideas. Relativism then is not, te- relativism is not truth tethered in love. It's untruth as truth attached to force. It's going to be forceful. How? It demands that you have to be absolutely open and absolutely uncommitted to any one faith. This is what it's telling you. It demands that you be tolerant and accept all viewpoints as to be equally valid and held to a standard of truth. You must be absolutely affirming, not of only of, of the other people, the way the Constitution tells me. How many knows that you are to affirm everybody and treat everybody equally? That's the Constitution. But the new cultural constitution demands that you not only uh, affirm the other person, but you have to affirm their belief system and you have to agree with what they agree with because if you disagree with them, you're being intolerant and you're being hateful to them. The culture fosters this idea that you must be so uncommitted to any single ideological faith and moral absolute so as to nullify true faith in, in any form. Tells you you can't really believe in anything. The culture then fosters the idea, well, his faith is as good as your faith. His book is just as inspirational as your Bible. His God is as good as your God. His God is the same as your God. Is He's just called by a different name. As Oprah says, well, God to you may be Jesus, but God to another guy may be Muhammad. God to another guy may be Hare Krishna. To another God, it may be that tree out there. To another one, it may be a pebble. It may be a stone. But if you'll really love God and whatever God that you have picked out to be your God, it'll all lead you to a path of eternal life. This is what our culture's buying into. They pour into our churches by the thousands. They're living in adultery. They drink, they get drunk, they go out, they party, they cuss, they lie, they cheat on their income tax. They do all kinds of things, but yet we are thine, God. No conviction, no restraint. There's no faith value that they're living at. It's not faith that's governing them. But yet they still want to be associated with this thing called Christian because they all want to go to heaven and live in this place of abyss. Come on. Here's the problem. As a Christian, faith values cannot be set aside. I can't just walk away from my convictions. God won't let me. You know why? Because I'm nailed to a cross. And that cross governs me. That cross keeps me from going places I shouldn't go saying things I shouldn't say, doing things I shouldn't do. Come on, somebody. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm not in bondage. I'm not unhappy because I got all these rules and regulations. Says, do, don't. I've got a lot of liberties and freedoms that most people have. I'm free from the enslavement of sin. I'm free from all of the throwing up in the next day or after having a hangover. I am free from all the fights and the struggles and all of the things that sin causes. You know why? I am free in Jesus Christ. Can I have any, somebody give the Lord an applause. Are you free here today? 
Anything that you put aside can't be valuable because you don't set aside your values, your standards, or your convictions. You clutch them. You hold on to them. You protect them. You'll die for them. We Christians cannot place our Jesus alongside of Muhammad, alongside of Buddha, alongside of Krishna or any other God. Why? Because we are to have no other gods before us. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh of the Father except through him. We proclaim that Jesus is King of kings, and he's Lord of lords, and there's none beside him. We proclaim that every knee shall bow and every tongue can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and flesh and blood has not revealed that unto us, but God has declared him. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, first and the last, and there's none like unto our God. We proclaim that God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on the earth and things even under the earth. We proclaim Jesus being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is in the express image of, of God the Father. We proclaim that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. We proclaim that we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins who's in the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of every creature. We who sometimes were far off we proclaim is made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. We proclaim that we're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold and by the vain traditions that we receive from our Father but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish. We proclaim what Jesus proclaimed in Revelations 1 and 18. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death, hell and the grave. We proclaim for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son to the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Last but not least we proclaim there's no name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved other than through the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you believe that, stand to your feet and give him praise. Give him praise. Hallelujah. But now our culture demands that we treat all faiths equal, all beliefs valid. Now our culture demands that us Christians take our proposals, subject them to a popular census so that they can amend it so that we can have a relative society. In other words, you can't be a bigot, you can't be narrow-minded, you can't believe in one faith, you can't believe in one God, if you'll come and you'll denounce your God as the only supreme God and then say that their God is just as great, their God is just as important, then we can all get along together. It's called universal religion, one world religion. All culture demands that we yield to a universal translation of truth over our religious convictions and our traditional values. 
Folks, you'll never stop this preacher from preaching on hell because hell is just as real as heaven. Come on. You're not ever going to get this preacher to stop preaching the Ten Commandments. The problem is we can't yield, therefore. We can't yield our convictions, so therefore we have become intolerant to this universal religion that is all about all of us being one, being one happy family. It makes us look like we're the bad guys. Come on. And in truth, when you really study it, the Muslims don't get along with any other religion. Matter of fact, in their creed, they say that no one has a right to live unless they're Muslim. But nothing's ever said about that. Come on. It's only us that are the ones that's always got to have a state of compromise. According to our new culture, our values and traditions have to be mended because they're outdated, they're biased, and full of prejudice because Christianity is a white man's religion. They believe that it's been built on white supremacy. They use the race card. This is why they cannot allow religion to be the rule of government because it would be a white man's religion doing it, according to them. Then when do we not yield to the... Uh, then when we do not yield to the system of the new world order, we are considered prejudiced, biased, intolerant, and we become bigots. They consider you to be hateful, mean-spirited, and prejudiced. And this world is not happy until they cast off all religious faith in God, and in order to do that, they got to get rid of you. Are you going to stand up for what you believe? Are you willing to die for what you believe? Are you willing to go to jail, lose your home? Are you going to cave in? Let me ask, we got a lot of teachers in here. What happens when they begin to tell you to teach the critical race theory? Are you willing to throw away your career, lose everything you got by not teaching it? Are you going to teach heresy and abandon your faith? That's hard, isn't it? And then when you don't, all the world's going to look at you and call you a bigot, narrow-minded. You, you, you're outdated. You're, you're, you're just a Christian. Uh, uh, you're just a Christian bigot who's out there trying to cram your religion down everybody else's throat. No, we're not. You can live the way you want. We're going to respect you. We're going to love you. But if you ask us or if you're around us, we're going to tell you that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Oh, it's getting serious. You're getting quiet in here. They consider you to be a nuisance. Do you know what the Apostle Paul calls you? The restraining force. You're in their way. They can't do nothing because you're still here. woo Everybody talks about, they're a thorn in the Christians. Oh, no. We're the thorn. Hello? And when they get mean and vile, we just love them. And the more we love them, we heat hot coals of fire upon their head. And the more they try to make us hate, the more we love them and the more hateful they become and the more miserable they become. Because their religion is not a religion of freedom. It's a religion of bondage and enslavement. And it's full of hate. And if there's anybody discriminative, it's them. Come on. Y'all mad at me yet? Well, hang on just a little bit. Maybe I can get you there. This is why they're wanting to rewrite history. I'm about, I'm about done. This is why they're tearing down our monuments and statutes of our forefathers. It was Karl Marx that said, take away a nation's heritage 
and they are more easily persuaded. He was so infatuated by the devil, amen. This is why they're wanting to remove all religious symbols such as Bible quotes, crosses, Ten Commandments, manger scenes, statutes of saints, statutes of crucifixions. This is why they're wanting to remove you because you, you rem, you're a reminder of what this nation was built upon. This is the, what the scripture says, and I'm closing with this. God in Psalms 2 says, folks, the heathen rage, they imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Did you hear what he said? They're after the Lord and his anointed. They're out to remove God or any kind of resemblance of God from the earth. That's what the scripture says. We're in a showdown between good and evil, light and darkness, and they are saying, let us break the bands asunder and cast their cords from us. We don't want them around us. We don't want their kind that be in our society. We got to cast them off. We got to get rid of them. We got to get them out of our country. We got to destroy them. We got to remove the anointed. We got to remove anything that's got an image of God, whether it be a manger scene, whether it be Christmas, whether it be, who would have ever thought that Christmas would become a holiday that would be fought so hard? They're wanting to cap off restraint of any kind. They're wanting to be free of law, free of government, free to do and believe and to live any way that they want to live in any way that they want to believe. They want a chaotic, lawless society. When Habakkuk has seen all the spoil, the violence, the decay of the nation, he said, why do you show me all this iniquity? Why do you cause me to grieve? I have prayed, I have cried, you haven't heard me. Why are you allowing this stuff to happen? These people are trying to remove the Christian from the earth, he says. Habakkuk was void of wisdom. What do I do? What are you doing, God? And how and what am I supposed to do? I don't have time to preach on everything, but in Psalms 2 is one of the most cited Psalms in the Word of God. It is connected to the crowning celebration of David as king, but more importantly, it is the messianic psalm fulfilled in Jesus Christ as Christ being Messiah. Until Jesus comes back, the enemy will plot, scheme, plant, uh, uh, plan, conspire, and war against God's people. That's the way it is. That's what we're faced with right now. When the question was raised, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? This, this was God's talking. God says, why do they imagine a vain thing? The word vain here means useless, the inability to produce results, having no likelihood. In other words, God's saying, do they really believe they can achieve this? Do they really believe they're going to remove me? Do they really believe they're going to remove my people as if I can't take care of them? It's not likely, he says. <laughs> They're imagining a vain thing. They're not going to be able to produce their desired, their desired results. They're not going to be able to follow through with this. Why? Listen to what he says. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he break unto them, speak unto them his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon his holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, and this day have I begotten thee. You know what that's saying? Let me just get off my notes and just stop right here. 
God's saying. They're saying, I'm going to remove God. I'm going to remove him and any face of him, any image of him, any kind of any kind of anything that points to him. We're removing it from the earth. We're going to cast off restraint. We don't want any image. We don't want anything about him. And you know what? His anointed, we're going to come and we're going to get them and we're going to destroy them. We're going to kill them. We're going to imprison them. We're going to beat them. We're going to do everything we can, seduce them to try to get them to change to universal religion. And he says, and before it's all over, we're casting off restraints. We're breaking the cords from among what this nation was built upon. And God comes along and says, ha, 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 I'm going to laugh at them. And in my sore displeasure, I'll speak wrath out unto them. In other words, church, this is what God is saying to the American church. Just hold on a little bit longer because God's about to stand up on his holy hill. You know what? They can't remove him from his throne. He is the one that sets up on the throne. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the earth is his footstool. All he's got to do is pass at his foot. All she's got to do is speak his word. And I'm here to declare that if a group of us will only believe and get behind, God will make us a remnant that will be a thorn in the side of all of these kinds of people that's trying to destroy America. And we are the army of God. We are a living epistle that should be read of all men. And we're going to stand up and decree and we're going to declare what he declared that Jesus Christ is Lord and he sets upon the throne. Nothing will ever change it. Nothing will ever do away with it. He is all supreme one, the almighty one, the omnipresent one, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one. He is God. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And he shall rule the wicked and he shall take care of his righteous. America is not lost. I decree it shall be saved. I pledge the allegiance to the United States of America and to the republic in which she stands. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's what she stands for. That's what she'll always stand for. I want you to know that God's name is at stake, that these old men of old built a covenant like no other nation, and God will sustain that covenant, and God will not let that covenant be broken. Somebody's got to believe it. It's time for us to decree that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's time to have a revolution. I said it's time to have a revolution. You ready for it? Are you ready for revival? Then shout praise to God right now. There's only one hope of freedom. We bow our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we're not ruled by him, we'll be ruled by tyrants. We'll be ruled by dictatorship. We'll be ruled by communism. We'll be ruled by socialism. We'll be ruled by Marxism. We'll be ruled by the devil himself. Huh. 
If you're not here today and you're not a Christian, right now is the time to come home because God's shaking in our world. And I want to tell you, he's shaking everything that can be shaken. And if you don't submit to God, everything that you have is nothing but on sinking sand and it's going to crumble. But if you'll come to him and put your feet upon him and build a foundation of righteousness, the world can shake and it can keep shaking and you'll stand the test of time. Amen. I love you here today. And if I seem to be a little bit mean-spirited, I'm not. I'm passionate. I'm passionate about our country. I'm passionate about our God. And I am passionate to declare that the Palace of Praise, starting July the 4th, 2021, that we're entering in to the time of awakening and we're, to, we're rising up and performing a, 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 a reformation and that you and I from this day forth will live in freedom and declare the freedom of Jesus Christ. We are not going to be bound we're going to have revival. Souls are going to be saved. People are going to be healed. People are going to be transformed. People are going to be delivered. We're going to have one of the greatest revolutions you've ever seen in your life. It's going to happen. I decree it. I declare it. starts right now. And it starts with you. And it starts with me. And it starts with our surrenderance. I know it's the 4th of July. I got things to do. I got family coming. I got all that stuff. But I want you to do me a favor. In humble submission to the Lord, I want you to raise your hands, both of them, as high as you can and approach this altar and I want you to surrender to the Lordship and start praying and saying, God, send us revival. God, send us awake. Today's the day. I submit to the revival. I submit to the change. I come in worship. I come in praise. I come in adoration. I come in declaration. I come declaring. I come decreeing. I come believing. I come. I come. I come as I am. Without one plea, I give you my all. I believe. I believe. I believe. Now pray. Come on, you got to enter in. You press in.